0: Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep, Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention. My financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from SpeechTherapyPD.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech-Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's Michelle. And I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis, to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can I begin? Then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out SpeechTherapyPD.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning! Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com. Okay, everybody, we are back. Thank you for joining us in your lovely, hopefully, summer break. I mean, I'm hoping that some of you, it's like the hot days of summer here in South Carolina, so I'm hoping somebody somewhere has had a lovely vacation. But we appreciate you spending your summers with us. So I... I have a phenomenal guest that I get the joy of introducing today and the backstory to meeting our guest today is that she's actually, I met her through Yumi and a lot of people don't know who Yumi is. So let me give a shout out to Yumi. Yumi is the director of content here with speechtherapypd.com. She's petite she is sassy. She is a speech-language pathologist, which I love. And I have to remember not to call her at the butt crack dawn because she's on like Pacific Northwest time and I'm on like East Coast time. And I assume everybody wakes up at 7 o'clock in the morning when it's like 2 a.m. over there. So, Yumi, thank you very much for all the things you do and for introducing us to Marina. So today I have the pleasure of interviewing Marina Shipilova. Marina, did I say that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Marina Shipilova, MS, CCC, SLP, is a speech language pathologist in the northeastern part of the continental United States, but by way of Russia. And she's fluent in English and Russian. And to my knowledge, you also know German as well. Not as much German, more Spanish than German. (laughs) Okay, yes. But that's why we're here today, because as y'all know, I speak English and bad English (laughs) that they edit out, go team. (laughs) So like... (laughs) Um, that's my contribution to humanity. But um, Marine is a little bit more cultured than I am. She's, uh, she's got advanced skill set in all these languages, which makes me blush at my embarrassment. I really think everybody should learn at least two languages. But you know, I fall short of my own aspirations, but there we are. So Marina and I met probably two or three months ago, and it was supposed to be just like a quick 15-minute phone call, but by the end of it, we were showing each other our house plants on FaceTime and even rescheduling because, of course, my tiny humans caught a cootie. So Marina, thank you for coming on today, and hi. <laughs> hi, Michelle. It's such a pleasure for me being here. Ah, this is lovely. Okay, so you work in the wild world of early intervention up north, but prior to coming to New Jersey, can you tell us what made you want to be a speech pathologist and your adventure here to the States?
1: Before moving to the United States in 2005, I majored in the English and German languages. (laughs) In Russia, yeah. and it was a long time ago, and I didn't graduate, so I only had like a you know, year or two of German, that's why it didn't really stick to me. There, I did some work as a tutor of English, which was my first experience of working with children, and then after moving to the United States, I decided to continue studying here, and that's when my coworker, at the time, knowing my background, suggested that I study speech-language pathology. And to be honest with you, I didn't know much about the profession at the time. I just did my research and I found it to be very interesting. So I decided to pursue the career.
0: And and you studied at like a major school. You were up at Stetton Hall, right? Uh, Seton Hall in New Jersey. Seton Hall University. Yeah. Wait, you say it's pronounced Seton? This whole time I've been calling it Seton Hall. No wonder people look at me funny. Okay. Yay. <laughs> okay. So, and I don't know how this works, but when you become a licensed speech-language pathologist, but you're from a different country, do you have to come with like a, is there a work visa? How does that process work? Is that, that's probably a very intrusive question, but I've always just wondered that.
1: Well, I didn't come here to study in particular. I just came here for vacation, to be honest. And i yeah. vacation. <laughs> but, um. So what happened is that then I met my future husband and that's why I stayed in the country. And so I didn't really have to do with any like you know legal or visa issues. I got married and after I decided to continue studying in the country. So and the only thing is that with the educational background that I had from Russia that basically didn't Help me in any way. So I kind of had to start all over and doing my bachelor's and master's programs in this country.
0: Wow. Wow. Oh, that's that was studying. That, I was already say that's awful. I mean, like that, that should have been a valid transfer. Oh, the things that we could change in the world if we had the magic wand, right? Absolutely. Just saying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you're, you're bringing with you these, this, Amazing world view and all of this different knowledge base and folks. When we were, when Marina and I were talking um, previously, she mentioned that the field of speech pathology in Russia is not well understood and not implemented, I should say, like it is here. Could you kind of talk ever so briefly about that?
1: Yes. And I would probably say it's not only Russia. Unfortunately, there are a lot of countries that do not provide enough support for whether adults or children who need services, speech, physical, occupational therapy, right? For example, a good friend of mine in Russia, she's a surgeon, and I did ask her once, you know, what do you do with patients when they get discharged from hospitals? And she told me that they go home. They go home. Yes, there is no support to the patients after they leave the hospitals.
0: Every single one of my acute care friends that heard that just took a big inhalation, like, oh my.
1: (laughs) Yes. Same as I know with speech therapy, which is growing. It's growing right now. But back when I was in school, to me, I had the idea of speech therapy. Like, you know, for me, it was articulation. I had a speech therapist when I was a child, but again, like, you know, I was working on pronouncing my R
0: sound, <laughs> Wait, and I couldn't I say could my not. name. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Bear. Bear couldn't say the R in Bear, so he's B <laughs> for like the longest time. So yes, <laughs> so that was the extent of
1: speech therapy back then. But luckily, like, you know, it's becoming more, it's growing, the field is growing, and there are more therapists, there is more research, there is more education done, but it's taking time.
0: That's okay. We're going to get there. Speech pathologists are to- slowly changing the world. Yes, love this. Okay. All right. So you work in early intervention, and in New Jersey, there are lots of individuals from different backgrounds and different cultures. So can you kind of talk to us, like how do you, how do you connect with families from different cultural backgrounds and how do you, um, share and bond?
1: I, from what I remember ever since I started early intervention, I started working with mostly Spanish, some Portuguese-speaking families, some of them bilingual, some of them are not. And uh, over the years, I find that it's very, so very important to be respectful to those families and to make them feel as if you're, they're equal. Because through even talking to parents, I sometimes find that they feel less than, you know, in a way, when a, when a therapist comes to the house and they don't feel empowered enough, to make that change on their own with their child, right? And they just, they're like, you know, like they give you the child and you do all the magic, right? And, um, so one is that I do find it's very important to be polite and respectful to the parents. I always say when I'm on my way for the session and even if like you know, like I'm five, 10 minutes late due to traffic, I always let the parent know that I'm going to eat, I'm on my way. I'm going to be there soon. And I always thank the family if there is a need to reschedule the session, if I can make it to whatever reason taking it to me. I cannot make it to the session on a certain day and time I always say thank you for your flexibility. I always appreciate the uh, family's involvement in the therapy session. And I also try not to be there to change their parenting style. I'm there to help the child together with the parent.
0: What you said is profound to not change their parenting style. Because parenting style can be so interwoven into cultural identity. When we go in to empower the caregivers with the advanced skill sets that we have, we have to do it with humility, recognizing that we may not understand why they elect to some kids some people put children in the corner when they make a bad choice or they have a timeout chair or they may get a pop pop. I mean it's part of how that family was brought up too. I mean, I'm not proponent of child abuse, so that's not what I'm saying, but like, you know what I mean? Just, yes, repercussions, consequences of actions, but also just how they fill that child's cup too. Yes. Sorry. That was a great, that was great, Marina.
1: I would also suggest that it is very important, again, not to assume a dominant role in the conversation with the parent, right? I would, to always try to discuss an idea with the parents to suggest instead of telling parents what to do and what not to do, right? And uh, to ask questions like, you know, what do you think? What do you think that can, can happen? Like, you know, if we do this, or what do you think can happen if we don't do something, right? Discuss it with the parent, make a parent a part of the therapy session.
0: So One of the things that you mentioned was that even down to flexibility in the different time or day of how you schedule. And honestly, that's, that's something that I feel like I do. I have a shortcoming on because like my work schedule is predicated on my children's school schedule. But even before that, Before we had kids, there was this lovely, blissful, like eight month window of where I worked in early intervention, but was not yet myself a parent. Oh my gosh, the things I recommended that I did should not have recommended because I was super green, but like we'll gloss over that part, right? But I didn't seek to understand how different cultures schedule their daily activities, how lunchtime could occur at different times or breakfast might not be as important not as important but not as a a vital component of the day but dinner could be the biggest meal of the day but like how do you do that it's not easy <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that I typically have about you know, 25 to 30 children on my caseload Yes. and I always try to be as accommodating as possible to my families and somehow it works out, but I do always confirm the day before of every session i do always ask parents to let me know as soon as possible if there is any change if you know something is coming up on your schedule let me know ahead of time so that i can try to accommodate that change because again my schedule is pretty much full so i try to stay in contact with the parents you know like knowing if there is anything that i have planned for the week for the day you know that will come um be on the same time of the session with the child right so i kind of like you know try to be within my set schedule i try to be still as flexible as possible and then if i know that there are some families who like you know where mom is always home and it doesn't really matter for her what time and day i show up right like you know like i have a number of those families which i know that if something comes up for another family who is like you know on more of a schedule I can reach out to the family and see if I can make that change and switch. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, it's fluent in a way, you know, like I kind of always have to see what and how I can change in case something comes up. Again, you know, my number one, uh, my number one goal is to try and to accommodate family's needs as much as possible.
0: Yes. Yes. That's this just makes me chuckle because we had a a little one that had to cancel because of a sister's like this past week. I had a teletherapy teletherapy PFD session. They had to cancel because of a sister's cheerleading commitment that popped up. And then I had to reschedule my the makeup because honestly, I finally went and did Uh, an annual exam and the lovely lady, the phlegmologist blew my vein. So like I was bleeding and bruised and the whole. And I was like, I can't make it home in time because my hand's the size of grapefruit right now. Sorry, I have bad veins in my arm, so they have to take it out of my hands. So like, that's fantastic. So we had to reschedule it. The only day that worked for both of our schedules was Sunday after church. And so I was like, "Only, only in the modern age can we do, you know. teletherapy but we had to we had to schedule it after church and before lunch because that was but it just kind of it made me chuckle because i was like this is yeah but you know we got it in and we it was a good session so go team (laughs)
1: yeah and i mean i have to say that i do use my saturdays on sundays if needed and again with the help of telehealth thankfully right now i'm able to if needed to do makeup like you know like after hours Sometimes yes. I have sessions at yes. seven or eight o'clock in the evening, you
0: know, if needed to be. Which doesn't happen yes. often, but it happens. It happens. Yes. Okay. All right. Now you have. Are you? Are you? You've taken the Hannon course. Am I pronouncing that correct?
1: Ah, uh, yes. I recently got trained in a more than words program. More than.
0: Yes. So you implement those strategies though in your sessions. So how does? How does that, it, y'all, I love this course. This is something that's been on my bucket list, that up there with floor time. But again, there's lots of classes on my bucket list and only so much packed dawson budget that we stick to. So you have to, you have to spread the wealth out for the classes. But how do you take, I'm just wondering, how do you take that level of knowledge and advanced training and embed it with caring? Parent coaching when there's so many different languages going on, like what does that look like in a session?
1: I have to say that I learned for myself that it's better to share information with the parents in the smaller chunks because <laughs> yes. I'm coming to the <laughs> session and I have and from what I see and I observe, I just have so much to say, you know. Yes, yes, we like, we want to jump in and do all the things. Myself, I know that a parent might not be prepared for all of the ideas that I have in my mind. <laughs> you know, I always remind myself, let's say, like, you know, like if I go to a doctor's appointment and I heard that idea somewhere, you know, with a person asking the question, like, you know, when you leave a, a doctor's appointment, how much do you remember of the recommendation that the doctor's made? Honestly, I don't remember much. <laughs> no and many times I have to call the office back and say like you know what did the doctor say I'm not sure I don't exactly remember so I always remind myself of that when I'm with the family and with the child and with the parents especially like you know when we just beginning and if I know that if I can see like you know that the parent is not really prepared to receive all that information. So I just try to like, you know, like share one idea at a time, then maybe add another little idea, like, you know, later on, and then just give like, you know, a few strategies for them to practice during the week. And then I come back and then I'll continue. Because if I, again, you know share as much as I can with my first session, I'll just going to confuse the parents, you know, and I'm just going to have the parent question, me so much rather than thinking like, you know, of working on those strategies with the child.
0: Yes. Yes. Pacing. That's what I have to remind myself is that I have to help the parent with the pacing more me pacing myself to not cause over. Yes. Okay. I will find myself in our sessions, especially when there's other siblings around I have a couple of patients right now that have little, little brothers and sisters. Like, I mean, like a newborn. And I just kind of wonder when you go in and you're working with like the older sibling or the child that's on your caseload, and then you start seeing red flags for like the other siblings, like, ooh, that one's not making noises or, oh, that one's not turning over. How do you broach that? Like, how do you bring that up? Because I... Like, I just kind of word vomit at people, and then afterwards, I'm like, Ooh, I should not have said it like that. So, do you, how do you go about bringing that up?
1: I try to be careful, and many times I find the strategy that works best for me is asking a parent a question without, like, you know, instead of making a statement, right? So, I might say, What do you think? Like, you know, how's the little white one doing? Like, you know, like, is he, like, you know, what? How's he communicating with you? Kind of like, you know, like making the parent think of that. Instead of me noticing, oh, I don't think your
0: child is making too many sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you <know>? Yes! <laughs> Yes. My husband does this. He will ask me a question to make me realize or make me think that it's my idea. And I'm like, I see what you're doing here. Well played, but like I'm on to it. But I mean, I don't recognize that he did the thing until after he did the thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, I see what you did there. But that's how folks, that's part of empowerment. When we go in and um, one of my favorite resources for this is the Family Guided Routines-Based Interview. And you can find them online at um, fgrbi.com. It's based out of Florida. But I love that specific tool because it talks to you like how to ask these questions. But I mean, even if part of our scope of practice is to do screens, sure. and I mean, if we're in with one child, then there's a... Increased risk factor for the other sibling also having the delay. So if you see it, ask it, speak it, and help. Yes. Okay. Now you have some great points on here. Y'all, I got to tell you, Marina wrote the most detailed notes for an episode that I have ever seen. And, and I feel bad because she's, she's got these great notes. And in the background, what you can't see is happening is that dog is, I record in my basement next to my grandma's bed. Um, and she called it her baby maker. It's made several generations. And as I told Marina, luckily we have a new mattress on the baby maker, but like dog is back there rolling around on the baby maker. And I'm like trying to get her to be quiet so that I can be present. But um, Marina has, (laughs) Marina, I'm going to take a picture of dog on the baby maker. This is great. I'll, I'll send it to you. But one of the notes is avoid saying no or stop. And I have this one child where I feel like the entire session, I'm like, no, 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 because if we see it, we're going to eat it or lick it and all the things. And you know, Chokable objects. So, what do you do when you're in the session and you have to say no, 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 but you don't want to do that?
1: (laughs) I honestly, on my experience, I just saw some extreme examples of kids who are constantly told no. You know, like I saw kids like, you know, trying to climb on walls, like, you know, trying to jump off furniture, you know, like just going crazy in their home. And again, I see that coming from a parent constantly trying to stop the child, you know, and the more you want to stop the child from doing what the child wants to do, like, you know, the more he wants to express himself, I feel like. So yes. I, one is that I try again, like, you know, depending on the situation, but I try to indirectly refocus the child, you know, by taking, like, you know, like a fun toy or, you know, I don't know, like blowing bubbles, which typically, like, you know, most kids love, right? Uh, So just to indirectly switch the child's attention from what he's doing. And I understand that there are some behaviors which you would want, repetitive behaviors that you would want to stop on the child, right? So, and my recent very illustrative example working with a child was when my, one of my moms would constantly tell me I cannot stop my child from throwing everything
0: around yes. the
1: house and I suggested like you know why don't you throw with him and it was a telehealth session right so she looked at me like what are you talking about <laughs> she's like Marina's lost it. this is the end of therapy.
0: I love that
1: suggestion by the way, okay, well what happened? What I mean is that you know like engage into controlled behavior in a way with your child, right so I suggested her like you know like get a box and throw the toys, throw something that can be thrown in that box and you can name the objects that you throw and you can count those objects as you throw right you can make it work for yourself. Just trying to stop the child from doing what he's doing, right? And sure enough, a couple of weeks after, a mom got back to me saying, he doesn't throw anymore.
0: I'm like, oh, (laughs) "Oh, wonderful. I love that. (laughs) We... We, we have this one little guy at um, at the clinic that I see. He's autistic and we're working with LAMP from um, Talk To Me Technologies for like an AAC device. And he's four, right? And this little guy, he wants to just do beanbags. So I got... I, was, I had the opposite problem. We had thrown so much. I was like, we need to do something different than throwing. So we did stack and worked on top. On top, well, I'm a giant comedian. And so I was stacking these beanbags on top of my head. And then when randomly, like after we hit whatever number on the communication device, I would go, oh no, and then drop them down and like pretend like that they went splat. I would make like fart noises, you know, like all these <laughs> nice things. And so mom came back like a week later and she goes, okay, we got to talk about the game. And I was like, what's wrong? And she goes, well, it was cool when he wanted to do it with his beanbags at home or his socks at home. She was like, but he thinks this is so great. He now brings everything he finds, including shoes, the remote mom's iPad, and wants to put it on mom's head to make it go splat. And I was like, so good luck with that. And I'm out. (laughs) <laughs> but it was, but like y'all, this is why this is why we don't bring bags of toys into the patients' homes because they have everything they need to do language. Yes,
1: yes, yes. And I honestly, like, I have, I always have kids on my caseload that don't even need toys. <laughs> yeah, you know, like we can play. I don't know. We can play with anything in a house. You don't even need toys as they are. You
0: know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, wait. This. Okay, so I'm super nerdy. Y'all, bust out your f- – well, if you're if you're driving, don't bust out your phone. But if you're not driving, there's a podcast called 99% Invisible, episode 492. It's called Inheriting Frobel's Gift. And the whole episode is about um, Mr. Frobel and how he designed – how he like, he went to school to be an architect, but he ended up becoming the man that invented kindergarten in the early 1800s. But he was the first person to systematically make children's toys. And it was so cool because it was a ball and a block and a cylinder like original children's toys. But yes, sorry, I just think that's fa- that. It's a great episode about how children's toys were supposed to be, Learning based, and then turned into all the glitzy glamour that we see today. That is non-educational. So that's a nice way of saying that, is that not, Marina? We, we I did that. We
1: so many times when parents or care- caregivers try to entertain their kids. They can with all the toys that they have in the house, and yet the child ch- chooses to play with the lid of a container. <laughs> yes yes yeah looking like how is it fun for him but yes it is fun for him <laughs> you know? because he and probably, probably have the like- same understanding many times yes. oftentimes what is fun for the child we are not children and like and it's harder for us to see their perspective what's fun for them you know and that's why again like you know it goes back to that child naturalistic approach in therapy you know when we follow the child other than the, you know rather than trying to force our agenda on a child, you know, because we don't have the same
0: understanding of things. Child naturalistic approach, child-led therapy. Yes, I'll be honest. I started out as a bag of tricks therapist when I first was in home health, like I brought the bag of toys in and then learned not to. Did you go through that process? Yes, I did, of course. (laughs) How did you... It was hard for me to change. Like, I was so reliant on those toys that it was really hard for me personally to change from my agenda and working with a specific word on a specific toy over. But, like, what, what made you evolve? I think in
1: my case, it was more of a natural... Change again, just observing and seeing kids playing with whatever they find around themselves. You know, like I'm that sometimes they like, you can, know, like, even if I bring it toy, oh, I don't even get to it because we just get so engaged and so, like, you know, whatever is happening in the house or whatever the child is engaged in on his own. Like, like oh, like, you know, and that's when I realized, the like, I, I might not need that, you know, what I bring with me. I can leave it home. And ever since, You know, it's really been working great. And I never had that need of bringing something into the house and then taking it back and making the child upset that they had so much fun playing with or now being taken away from him.
0: Yes. I hate having to clean up. Like when I was done with my session and then having to clean up, it was always waterworks. Like I, I remember sitting there thinking, why do I do this to myself every single session? like for a week. And that was one of my thoughts. Like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Y'all, we, we go through and we highlight how we've learned to grow professionally because I don't want anybody thinking that we have all the answers. We, this is this, when you're a speech language pathologist, part of our chosen profession is that as the new evidence emerges, we have to change our practice patterns and move forward. Because I've worked with, there's, there's a couple of interpreters that I've worked with, because again, I speak English and bad English. And in South Carolina, our early intervention system actually pays for interpreters to come in. So for me, one of the challenges, one of the things I've had to learn is how to work through and with an interpreter in order to kind of get, help get the family where they needed to get. Does that make sense? So like, have you had to learn strategies like that? Like, what does that look like for you? I've been lucky
1: to have partnered with an interpreter who's been doing a great job with me for about three four years i want to say and i work with a number of agencies and she is with two of them so like you know like typically most of the work that i do with bilingual family with spanish-speaking families are with her but i do need to say that i have really high standards for an interpreter and interpreters and i did um have to ask agencies to change a lot of the interpreters until i got to the one that i'm really happy with right now yeah <laughs> you know, because unfortunately i do have to say that not all interpreters get training in what they do and here in new jersey i know one agency who contract uh into like, you know translate an agency where they are trained to be doing what they do and then yet there are in other agencies who just hire bilingual English Spanish regular you know like people from different backgrounds you know who don't know what they're coming to do yeah and with that I again like you know like I do know a good amount of Spanish so I pretty much know what is being told to a parent or what the parent is trying to say. Like, you know, my thing is I just don't have enough grammar to say it on my own, but I understand what is being said. So, and same as with speaking to a parent directly, when I do talk to an interpreter, I try to break my, like, you know, what I have to say into smaller chunks, right? Because I understand same as a parent, like, you know, like as much experience as a translator might have on the field, She's not trained. Like, you know, she doesn't know where I'm coming from, right? And for me, it's important for the translator to say exactly what I'm saying and, and to explain to the parents why I'm saying what I'm saying, like, you know, to, to translate my idea because I find that a lot, of their, like, you know, like a lot of translators, they would just translate what I suggest without the explanation why. Which is to me is as 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 important as the the strategy itself that I'm sharing. Like I want the parent to know the reason the reasoning behind it. So, and many times when I hear like you know like that something is not sounding right to me, the, the interpreter is not getting it. Like you know like it's not sounding the way I would want it to be, right? So I have to repeat myself. I have to really like you know explain to the translator this is what I mean. This is what I want you to say. You know, and I always think, you know, also try to check whether, uh, whether personally, you know, does it make sense to you to understand what I mean before you translate the idea to the parents?
0: You explain that so beautifully because I would struggle with trying to explain, um, the medical terminology and. <laughs> I had one interpreter, she was like, I don't think eosinophilic esophagitis is a common term. And I was like, no, 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 that is not, that's not a common term. She's like, so we're going to, we're going to write this one down, Michelle. I was like, yes, (laughs) ma'am. But that was trying to talk because of the patients that I see. A lot of them have feeding tubes or we're trying to get them into Specialty clinics and I live and work in the South. So trying to empower individuals through an interpreter, when I know that we're going to face explicit bias within the medical community and racism, because that's what it is, that that can be really hard. That sucks. It's it's more than hard. It just sucks sometimes. I feel like on our end as therapists, this is where we really have to focus on, especially when we're trying to get referrals in place, that consent to release medical records and continuity of care and making sure that we have that in place and parent permission to like reach out to the pediatrician and explain this is why we need the referral here. And that's one strategy is I would make sure we had written consent, but I would do that in the session, make those referral requests, call the pediatrician with the interpreter and the parent there to try to put us on the same page. But also I'm a white female. I had, because of where we work, I had families that would be afraid that I would call immigration if they You know, if they questioned me or, and I'm like, no, question me. I'm your therapist. You should be able to question me. But do you encounter situations and scenarios like that at work? I think
1: what I see a lot with the population that I work with, a lot of my parents, they, I mean, they don't question. They are just happy to receive what they're receiving and thankful and grateful but they, and that's what I th- they feel like it's, it's like you know it's my responsibility to empower those parents you know because if even like you know when I try to make them a part of a family and engage them in a in an activity they just feel like they don't know what they do and they just trust they completely trust you into delivering whatever services you're like you know whatever you have to deliver right and they just they don't feel qualified right? They don't know what, they don't know how to do. So, and many times they'll be like, oh, you know better. You know, like you, you you just do it. Like, you know, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do.
0: Oh, so they shut down. So it's like, yes. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Okay. So how do you get them to kind of come out of their shells and engage? Try to, I think
1: one of the good strategies that I found for myself is Stepping away from play sometimes and getting involved into more routine activities, like, you know, whether it's a mealtime or whether it's even, like, you know, a diaper change. Yes. So that it feels more natural for parents. Yes. To be involved, what they do on a daily basis, rather than, like, you know, like, to have them do something that they don't, they think they don't know how to do. Right. So moving to into something that parents are more confident in and feel more comfortable doing but now they do it with you with
0: the I'm sorry you said more confident and you were talking about diaper changing and like I would legit, I legit put my kids diapers on wrong for the first couple of weeks and all I could think was yeah except then you come across a mom like me and I totally screwed that up so like go team <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> I mean, my own example <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. So for any first time expectant mothers out there, if you're pregnant with a boy, here's a really big hint. Push the tally down in the diaper. Otherwise they piece straight up and the top of the diaper is not going to catch that. And then you're going to wear that and go through like 400 wardrobe changes. So Do as I say, not as I do. Also, baking soda in the diaper pail, dude. Definitely put baking soda in the diaper pail. It will save your nostrils big time. But that was all I could think was like how many times I got peed on as you were explaining that. Oh my God. And then another thing,
1: Michelle, I don't know if I emailed you about it before the podcast and I don't know if that's something that can be on the podcast. Yes. Uh, I do find that. A lot of families, they accept the services, no matter what the quality of the services are. Yes, and that sucks. I And I mean, on my experience, I just had so many parents talk to me about the therapist leaving the session, you know, much earlier than they're supposed to. Parents, uh, like, you know, uh, parents telling me that therapists ask them to sign for the th- sessions that never happened, right? And they just don't know. They don't know what they're supposed to do, you know. And they just trust the therapist. And if the therapist asks to sign, they sign. If the therapist gives them a blank piece of paper, like you know, without the date and the time of the session, they sign.
0: Yes, because they simply don't know. Yes, and that's that. What those therapists are doing is fraud. Exactly. So, and it makes me so mad. And then, for some
1: reason, like you know, a lot of Parents share this with me, and I'm just how, why would you do that? And I like, I have a family who has three therapies, and they have a considerable copay for the sessions, right? And mean like, you pay, like, you have two children, and you sign for the session that never happened, you pay to the therapist, like, you know, you take that money away from your child, from your children, why? Like, and it never even struck you, like, you know, to so think. Should you be doing that? Should you ask? Why would you sign an empty, like, you know, blank
0: piece of paper? No, because, because fear, power, I mean, those are real things. Those are barriers to quality service. If you're afraid to ask the question for fear of retribution or loss of service rendered or, you don't want to be labeled the difficult patient or the difficult client, right? I mean, I straight up tell my therapist, like for the boys, I mean, I'm, I am not always a compliant patient. Like there's times when we have Like, you know, because Bear was in, my youngest was in speech therapy for a really long time. But like Dr. Angela and Dr. Lemon knew that I would do what I could in that week, but there would be times when we couldn't focus on what they asked because he was sick or we had to have surgery or life happened. Right. But when I had, I felt comfortable enough to ask the questions because I'm in the know, but I've gone to, doctor's offices that were outside of my comfort zone, like overshare. One day my sons are going to listen to these and be like, mom, you talked about my testicles on a podcast. I'm like, yes, yes, I did. But like, I mean, when Bear was little, he had an inguinal hernia and they had to go in and do repair surgery. And I was afraid to ask the questions y'all, we're college educated women. And I am petrified to ask the questions like, how is this going to impact him long-term? Like, will he ever be able to have children? Like, you know, those kind of questions. And the urologist was, he could see my fear and he was really good at being in tune with the caregivers and patients. And I'm grateful for that grace. But had it been different, I don't know what I would have done. Okay, so what advice do you give when a caregiver tells you that they're signing these things? What do you tell those caregivers to do? Contact the agency, ask for another therapist. But, and again, which is
1: like, you know, like the family that I most recently talked to, mom said that, but my son liked her. You know, yes. It's difficult. Like, you know, we had another therapist before, and my son didn't get along with her. Mm-hmm. You know, like now, my child likes having, they like, you can know, like, likes working with this lady. But it doesn't mean that you have some sacrifice. Like, you know, like still, like, you still, know, like you still need to advocate for the, your child. You should choose your, your child over the therapist, like especially since they like, you can. Know, I just, like, you know, try again to educate them and tell them that these first years of your son's life are the most important. You don't have any time to lose and you want to make sure your child gets what he's supposed to be getting at least so and sometimes it takes time i'll be honest with you like and i check back with the families like i check back with the parents Like, can have you talk to the agents have you ask to change the therapist and not everybody does Unfortunately, because again, like you know, they they just don't feel comfortable coming out and uh, you know expressing their negativity to that person, you know, to the therapist. But uh, again, like you know, I just always try to encourage them to advocate for their child.
0: Yes, that is, and folks, we can do that by teaching them how to ask the questions. We can. Okay, so raw raw moment I have a little one that I've had the pleasure of working with for the last couple months and services rendered have been sporadic not because of any fault of the caregiver but because the little one kept getting sick and having to go to the hospital, right? And through the RBI interview we found out that um mom was in a domestic violent situation for which she had the male partner had gone to jail. Um, however, he had gotten out of jail and come back in and this was, there's those barriers going on in our patients' lives as well. And honestly, that was hard for me because I'm, I'm a survivor of abuse from my ex and, when caregivers go there with me because they trust me, it's really hard for me to put my PTSD on the side, right? So some of the uh, – I'm trying really hard not to cry, Marina, so excuse me while I'm um, having a little bit of anomia. But I am aware that when services are sporadic, patients tend to fall to the later – end of a wait list for regular services because we have to make a living as well. Right. But it was through asking those hard conversations, what's going on, what's happening in your world that we were able to equip this caregiver. It all goes back to Maslow's hierarchical needs. Y'all, if you don't know Maslow's law of hierarchical needs, We couldn't focus on advancing the patient's skill set because we had to take care of that base level, which was safety. And I'm happy to report that mom's in counseling and a different living situation. And guess what? Child's thriving, right? But like we had to go there. I mean, we had to, I gotta be honest. I'm just going to call it what it is. Inpatient therapists get the joy and all this admiration for being the most strongest, coolest part of our field, right? And EI tends to get the rap that all we do is play with babies. Honestly, I feel like most days we're fighting with two hands behind our back. We don't have access to medical records. We're flying blind. We're in patients' most intimate moments with their homes. And I think of all of the various scopes or practices that we do, I think this one might be the hardest, most rewarding, but definitely one of the hardest, but just, just my two cents. <laughs> yeah,
1: and well, unfortunately, I feel that there is not enough meaning that is, uh, that students in graduate schools receive. Yes. Or new graduates they can like you don't get so much opportunity to do internship or fellowship in early intervention setting yes you know and i hear a lot of therapists say one is that they don't feel comfortable working with children which again truth be told hopefully us therapists working in early intervention know that in early intervention we don't only work with children we work with parents with caregivers
0: yes right We're, we have to learn how to educate parents this is about parent education not necessarily Michelle, child education yes it's breaking up for me for some reason i could not
1: hear what you said
0: <clears throat> oh that's okay they can, they can edit i said um what did i say i said it's honestly it's parent education we have to learn how adults learn in early intervention because that's what we're doing is we're focusing on adult learning, like coaching the parents. Yes. (laughs) We went really deep and got emotional. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I mean, I just see that
1: how many therapists struggle. And I feel like most of us really have to learn on our own experience because we don't get that team support as you would, you know, in other settings. We mm-hmm. are kind of isolated right? and uh, we work on our own. So unless you really like, you know, like do engage in self-education, you know, there is not much that you can get from the outside. Yes. And that's actually like, you know, one of the reasons why I really decided to create a work, um, a course for a speech language pathologists, right? Because mm-hmm. when I started working on the workshop for parents, and my idea was to share the strategies and ideas that I have with parents, I realized that that really might be helpful for their practitioners, you know, because we don't, yeah, we are so isolated in this field. Yes,
0: yes, we are. And you're right. If you didn't get a practicum in this, you, you didn't normally have the opportunity. Okay. Can you talk to me about the course? Where where can people learn from you? What is the course called? Where is it at? Uh, so right now I
1: am, the course is still in the works. I am working on uh, getting enough of evidence-based support for the course that I have. And I am at the moment mostly focusing on uh finishing up that workshop for parents that I've been uh, putting together and I am uh, in. I've been in touch with the early intervention in New Jersey, in, uh, in New Jersey uh, to organize and schedule those workshops for parents so that's my primarily focus at the moment and then once I'm done with that I will move on to finish up the course for the practitioners which I um again, like, you know, decided to do to empower and help as much as I can, uh, newcomers or other speech language pathologists in the field. And that's why I happened to reach out to you, me from speech therapy. ED. And that's how like, you know, we all got connected.
0: Yes. Yes. I love this. And I love that you're putting the focus first on empowering the caregivers. That's, that's phenomenal. So. If folks are looking for a course, if they're in New Jersey and they're looking for a course to encourage their caregivers to attend, um, just keep their eyes peeled for early intervention New Jersey. Is there a specific name or just different organizations? Uh, give me one second, Michelle, if you can just pull up the name of the lady. See, that's what I find fascinating. Like in South Carolina, we have one overriding early intervention system. It's called BabyNet. And like where I lived in Virginia before moving here, um, there was piecemeal regions. And so like where I worked in Virginia, we would have something called Risk the Rural Infant Service Program. But it's, I would love it. Again, wave the magic wand. If one day IDEA Part C was systematic across the country, that way it made for easier transitions such that if a family, I don't know, was military and they moved from one state to another state, services were fluid and smooth. But, you know, the magic wand idea one day.
1: No. So I've been in touch with the director of family support, uh, Family Link, in New Jersey. Her name, her name is Carmela Palaco. Okay. She's cool. a developmental interventionist herself, and we had a wonderful conversation, a Zoom call. And uh, you know, she's shared her frustrations and ideas and the strategies that she implements in her therapy sessions. So she is the one that will be looking like, you know, like she um, works with families and we are working together on, like, you know, us organizing those workshops to help families and caregivers.
0: Yes, perfect. Love this. Okay, so folks. If you're there in New Jersey, there's your local option. And then stay tuned because when you're ready to make the switch, um, let us know because we'll be advertising it heavily because this was absolutely a lovely conversation. Thank you. Okay. If you had <clears throat> one word of wisdom, or maybe not a word, but like a thought, and encouragement for a therapist new to early intervention or somebody that's listening that wants to get into early intervention, what would you recommend?
1: I would recommend to ask questions and to look for help and not to not be afraid to ask and know that all of us are there to support each other and to help each other. And we are all there for one reason, you know, and we are all together to make a change in the child's life. And I honestly just feel like we just have such a privilege of of being able to do what we're doing. And I I just recently thought to myself that, I've been in early intervention for about seven years now and over that period of time i probably work with about a thousand of children and that's tremendous. You know, being able to make even the smallest change in that number of children's lives is unbelievable to me and I feel like all like if I I would just want us to like to all come together and to all like you know being able to share ideas you know and again like you know ask questions, share strategies, share advice. Like you know we can all help each other. So and again like you know like going back to the point where like you know this is still like in know relatively isolated field. We need to be open to each other like you know we should be comfortable looking for that support for advice because what we do is so important
0: yes and the only thing I would add is laugh folks laugh with laugh at your growth laugh at. I mean I look back on what I did when I first started and I'm like oh good lord what was I thinking but I mean give yourself grace have a good laugh and move on and then laugh with the families because A lot of times they're working through their different stages of grief that their child has a delay or disorder, but like help them find the joy. <clears throat> Laugh when they put the diaper on crooked. Laugh when there's a blowout. Laugh when there's, you know, you know, a random fart noise because children make those things as my children are upstairs right now and I can hear um, <laughs> somebody's not sneeze and then I heard a fart. So, oh my God, Marina, I walked in on my children last week. They had their socks off and they were holding each other's foot up to each other's face to see who had the smellier toes. I kid you not. I was like, I walked in, I was like, what the H-E double hockey sticks is going on right now? And they were like, we're playing. I was like, go get Legos. And I like asked my husband afterwards, I was like, is that normal? And he's like, baby, they're boys. It's totally normal. I was like, girls don't do that. (laughs) And I said that to one of my girl moms and she goes... Yeah, they do. I was like, ugh. (laughs) So (laughs) Steve, you don't always need toys to play with. (laughs) No, we don't need toys. We don't need Froble's gifts of toys. We've got feet. (laughs) Like, oh god. Oh my god. Oh my God. That's great. Okay. Everybody, um, thank you for joining us to um, listen to Marina's Words of Wisdoms and my comedic wit today. I appreciate that. And um, um, uh, stay tuned for more from Marina on speechtherapypd.com. Yumi, thank you. We love you. Thank you for introducing us. Um, As always, uh, please um, hit us up for a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And, um, uh, if you haven't done so already, check out Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. You can find it on Amazon. Um, and it does, um, carry, uh, 1.35 or 13 and a half hours of ASHA continuing education through speechtherapypd.com and have yourself a happy, safe summer. Feeding Matters And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.